Uh, we're rolling anxious to hit record here on Inside Radio and Records with Kevin Zinger because look at this sunset. Just time out, first of all. Q sunset. I mean, Darren special ordered that for me. Come from Malibu, dude. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta give you at least something, right? Besides the Corona. Thank you for making the trip, by the way. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah. Absolutely. I had Brian Klein. I love Brian. Klein. Brian Klein, another Malibu dude Good who came down here for this. Yeah. See, there are cool people that live in Malibu. <laughs> I was joking about having to like have his passport down here. So, proper introduction for Kevin Zinger. Uh, he is the soul behind the spade. That's right. Of uh, SRH and uh, the soul and soul owner of uh, Suburban Noise Records, which we'll get into in a little bit. First of all, man, I'd like to go back to the beginning early, early on. You grew up in San Diego. Grew up in San Diego. Going all the way back to the beginning, I was about 18 years old living in Mission Beach. My partner, who's still my partner in SRH, was doing a nightclub. And I was sponsored was surfer club? and trying to. What was that club? It was called Club 860. It was on Garnet yeah. Avenue, which yeah. is now Pacific Beach Bar and Grill. Right. I oh yeah, PB Bar and Grill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And my partner uh, in SRH, his name was Ryan White. SRH was like a little crew of kids around Mission Beach, and we were the Stoners wreaking havoc or the Surfers wreaking havoc, whatever you want to call it. Which one was it first? Stoners wreaking. There you go. End the debate right there. <laughs> Because it could be skaters, snowboarders. Yeah, I mean, that's it's morphed good. into supporting radical habits. It's morphed into a million different things, but yeah, that's that, the original Stoner's really habit. Absolutely. Um, so he was doing a like a little nightclub up the street. He invited me over there, and he said, "Hey, come check it out." We uh, a mutual friend uh, was living with him at the time, and he was like, "Come check out my club." And I went, and it was cool. It was in a great spot, but there wasn't really that many people there. And he was like, would you be interested in partnering up with me on this club? And I was like, well, you know, first of all, you had to sneak me in to fucking even come the first day. Because I wasn't even 21. I was 18 or 19 at the time. And I was like, you know, can you pull it off with the owners? And he was like, yeah, I can pull it off with the owners. And I was like, cool, yeah, I'd totally be into that. But give me like two or three weeks. Let me find like a good band and really try to promote it correctly. So next thing I know, you know, fast forward a couple months later, the club's at full tilt. You know, we were jamming 1,200 people in this club every week. You know, this is the... What were some of those early artists? uh, Kennywise, Sublime, 311, Offspring... I mean, you name it. The, yeah. the, the, I mean, this was before any of them went on to sell platinum right. records. Right, this is and, like, uh, well, yeah, the late 80s, 90, early 90s. Yeah, it was 91, 92, something yeah, right. like that. Yeah, 91. I was hip to a lot of that music, you know, the no effects and all that stuff through the surf and skate culture, because that's where I grew up in. So, you know, I mean, it wasn't like we sat down and came up with a game plan of this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to launch SRH clothing or anything like that. It was just, we were so a part of that culture already. For those that don't know SRH, for those outside that realm, it's a lifestyle brand. It's a lifestyle right. in the way that hip hop would be. That's I think right. that where it's, you know, when you talk about whether it's, you know, stoners or surfers or skaters or snowboarders wreaking havoc, it's like that whole lifestyle. But this all blended nicely with what you were doing with music. Absolutely, yeah. But that pre, that came before. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I was because that was a high school thing, I, right? I was, I was a first a club promoter, and all of a sudden, you know, I was 18, 19 years old. I was a sponsored surfer at the time, and you know, we went from doing one night a week to all of a sudden we were doing five or six nights a week. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't even old enough to get in the club. All the next thing you know, you know, 
everything the, the fun parts of rock and roll the the girls the booze the Rugs, everything that comes the late I mean, nights yeah the late yeah. nights you know the whole showing up to a contest at Saturday morning at 6 o'clock to surf you know when I'm walking out of a club I just booked my favorite band the yeah. girls all the things that come with it waking up at 6 in the morning to go try to compete to try to get to a final to maybe win 500 to 700 bucks just wasn't that appealing anymore you know right, so eventually what happened was we were doing so many nightclubs and doing so many concerts and we really became like we tagged everything SRH and people like I said it was before all these bands became popular but we branded it well enough where people saw SRH Presents and it was a certain thing you know I grew up in Southern California you know I was born and raised here so it's just you know it's just part of my DNA so people knew that like if SRH was throwing a show the band would fit a certain lane or a certain vibe and there would be you know it was just it was that thing and eventually you know a few years into it um, well it wasn't even a few years probably a year and a half into it my clothing sponsor at the time dropped me that was gotcha clothing for oh, surfing. gotcha yeah, yeah. Uh, surf gotcha, gotcha shorts yeah and you know that, back then gotcha it was all the shorts. bright you know yeah. colors which the, is now back in all the plaids yeah, yeah it was just terrible and i couldn't even wear the stuff i would literally get my box from gotcha and i'd go like just give it to my friends or return yeah. it to the surf shop right. and i pretty much wore you know i i i was a surfer at heart but i always loved skate culture and i skated too but you yeah. know i love skate culture so Long story short, Gotcha dropped me as a sponsor, surfer, and I went to my partner at SRH, and I was like, look, I'm going to take the money from doing these nightclubs, and I want to start my own clothing line. Mm -hmm. Let's do this, you know? And he was he gave me the shot at doing the club and first break, and he was like, yeah, I'll do it with you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 20 years later, he's still my partner, so that's a good testament to to the SRH thing and, and that the bond that we've had. But, you know, slowly but surely, we started to take the money that we were making from clubs and investing it into this clothing brand. And I mean... For, you and I have known each other for like seven, eight years now. And I've never really heard this story front to back because I didn't know SRH was basically like a tag. Like yeah. more or less just like yeah. a, a name that was like part of the show, part of the promoting and everything. Exactly. It was... The, the actual like logo on clothing and the that was all second that, that was call, all second that was second okay yeah basically what happened was we were like I got dropped by Gotcha I said let's take the money from the clothing I mean I'm sorry from the from the concerts that were thrown and put it into a clothing company and we just started by making a couple of t-shirts and a bunch of hats found an embroidery company and made a bunch of stuff and we started handing it out to like you know, our friends who were pro skaters, bands, and the next thing you know, there getting was the name this, out there. Yeah, yeah, we were just getting the name out there, and we all of a sudden we had this huge, like, sort of cult following in Southern California, you know? I mean, everybody from, I mean, you name it back then, all the bands were rocking it, right? Yeah. And it was, it was, uh, it was a special time period for music and Southern California lifestyle, and, you know, we didn't have any big investors, we didn't have anything. I mean, it was so grassroots that, I mean, I can remember when we f did our first cut and sew piece it was I took a flannel that I liked mm -hmm. and a pair of shorts that I liked and I took it to a sew house and I was like okay this is what I want changed and we cut it all out and right. I make the I made the templates and then I literally I drove to downtown LA to yeah. go get the to go get the material yeah I brought rolls of uh, flannel and rolls of denim yeah and I brought it back to the sew house and they didn't speak the best English, and I didn't speak Korean. Yeah. They were, they were nice Korean ladies, and they got it backwards. So they made denim shirts, 
and flannel shorts. This was our first go at cut and sew. And so you put the shorts on and went like this, and they ripped from year to year. <laughs> yeah. And then you put the denim sh denim shirt on. I mean, I'm sorry, the flannel shirt that was actually denim. Right. It was stiff as a board. Yeah. So our first real like dive into the cut and sew thing didn't go too well. Dude, but we, I would say, the fashion and. The, the music industry are two of the toughest things to do. Yeah. Of and all things that you could choose to like, uh, the two hardest. Yeah, I went I went on the uh, fake it till you make it uh, program and just tried to figure <laughs> it out along the way. And we all feel two, like frauds, don't we? Yeah, and pick the two hardest professions to actually make money in. When did suburban noise come out of all that? Basically, what happened was was we were we started doing. Um, so many shows and the clothing company started doing really really well around 94 95 um, and what we would do is Interscope came to us and we put out our first compilation and Interscope I was friends with somebody over at Interscope I, at the time to be honest with you I didn't even know Interscope was a huge label it was like the whole LA music scene was mm -hmm. a foreign world to me I knew how to deal with agents and I knew how to deal with like booking agents to book bands but that was pretty much it at the point right so um, we start Interscope came to us and was like you know they wanted me to I knew somebody over there that was actually running the place at the time they wanted me to drive up to a meeting for as an A&R source in San Diego and mm -hmm. that whole just I was on the DIY punk rock like I was like what I'm not driving to Hollywood and doing it but Anyways, I went up and did this meeting, and they were like, well, you put together a compilation, and on that original compilation, I mean, it was, I mean, it was Offspring, it was Pennywise, it was... It re it's like a who's who of, like, SoCal Rock yeah, in absolutely. that era. Yeah, before it actually blew up, yeah. right? And that was our first record that we ever put out. At that, in the same time period, there was a band called Sprung Monkey from yeah. San Diego, and I was still super good friends with those guys. Um, Sprung Monkey came to me and was like, you know, you're one of our better friends. We trust you. You're a good business guy. Will you manage us? And I was like, yeah. I mean, they were, I, I love that band. And mm -hmm. so that was sort of my first entree into the management side of things. Mm -hmm. And that first compilation I did through Interscope was sort of the first entree into actually putting out a record. Um, and then eventually that morphed into Suburban Noise. Cottonmouth Kings was... Uh, a Southern California lifestyle band. We put them on all the biggest shows that we had at SRH and basically tried to blow them up through that. And they mm -hmm. ended up getting a deal. And then I partnered up with Brad in 97 out in Suburban Boys. Cottonmouth Kings had been around since, what, early 90s? Mm -hmm. Already? Yeah, I, I think the original, I think it was like 96. Like How would you describe Cottonmouth Kings? Cottonmouth Kings, I mean, look, like... For all the ups and downs that we've had in the last four years, I'm still very proud of what we accomplished. I mean, they mm -hmm. were they were a small band that we made huge worldwide name, um, and you know what what's happened in the last few years has been an interesting ride for their legacy. But they're still a you know they're still a huge part of Southern California subculture for right. sure. Right. Well, we're on it. Let's talk about it. I mean, it's. Uh... I don't think that you can go through 20 years in the music or in the fashion business without some sort of legal interaction, <laughs> right? Some sort of... Uh, well, that was my first one, yeah. Was it? Uh, yeah. It was well, uh, first. I mean, Hopefully first of all, last. dude, congratulations. I mean, it is 20 years. Yeah. It's been 20 years, been and 20 that's... Years. Uh, I was just talking to, like, uh, you know, Joe, Joe Sib inside One Dummy doing yeah. 20 years. Uh, Swing House, Phil at Swing House yeah. is 20 years. So there's, like, all these guys from kind of the... 
early mid '90s that are like still out there killing it. Yeah, and and, and all those guys that you mentioned, you know, including myself, you know, they love the music because you know it's hard. Passionate. It's, it's yeah. hard to make money in the music business. It just yeah, is. nobody nobody gets up and does it. Okay, I'm gonna try to make a million today. You're like, yeah. I'm just trying not to get one of my yeah. artists arrested. <laughs> you know, it's Pretty like. Much. <laughs> so speaking of that, okay, let's. So tell, I want you to explain it how you feel comfortable from your standpoint because. For those fans that are out there that know the Suburban Noise, the SRH, the, the Cottonmouth Kings world, they know Brad X as being kind of your counterpart to all yeah. that. But that's not the case anymore. That is not the case anymore. <laughs> right. Again, you tell the story, I'll, I'll, but how did it come to be? It came to be, look, when a band has as long as a run as the Cottonmouth King, and once again, I mean, I was there... From the beginning, literally, those guys were sleeping on my couch in San Diego, and Brad and I were, you know, putting money in to make the first records and mm-hmm. all that stuff, basically getting off. The, but when you go through basically 15 years with somebody, people change. They just do. You know what I mean? And through the ups and downs of it, um, I hung in there as long as I possibly could, literally, mm-hmm. because, you know, what we created with... And when I say we, I don't mean just Brad and I. I mean, there were, you know, there were... A lot of the, people involved. A lot yeah. of people involved. Yeah. The, the yeah. people that worked in the building to the fans. I mean, we really yeah. built, like, a whole subculture around this thing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it was it was bigger than... It was bigger than any brand or bigger than any band. You know, yeah. there was... And we were... And it was, like, a weed-friendly lifestyle before there was such oh, thing as being weed-friendly. Oh, absolutely. Or, you know, absolutely. that's another thing that, like, yeah. kids that are probably SRH fans now in the last five years or so have no clue about oh, it when was, they're going back 15, you, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, when we started selling stuff to, like, Zoomies and Tillies and stuff like that, like, can you imagine, like, walking in there and showing the, you know, stoners wreaking havoc line yeah. to, like, corporate people in the, in the I Midwest? I mean, I would they're say, like, <laughs> based, because, like, from a parental standpoint, I would say from, like, a content standpoint, yeah. from, like, a, a content, you know, lyrical uh, message that was on the same level with Cottonmouth Kings as it was with, like, Gangster Rap. Yeah. It's like your parents did not... There were lists of shit that you could not listen to. And those guys and, you know, their counterparts were part of that. Oh, yeah. So it was like there was that edgy lifestyle that doesn't exist so much unless you're, like, you know, part of the Juggalos or something. Or, like, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway... Well, I mean, the Juggalos, I mean... They, they somehow made it on the FBI's watch list, and I mean, they thought they were uh, uh, yeah. organized crime yeah. syndicate. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. crazy. It's kids trying to have fun. You yeah. know what I mean. All right, so you uh, and Brad, you're battling it out years and years, and uh, yeah, I mean, we were on the grind. Became... For, we were on the grind for 15 years, and towards the end, I would say probably the last three or four years, you know, we were partners in a business together, and I managed a band, his band. And, um, you know, it, it, when I say it, it was us that created this whole movement, like, I mean, there really was, I mean, you're talking about people with logos tattooed on them and oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it was, it was a huge thing. And, and to me, what we set out to create, it just towards the end, it just didn't feel right. And as much as I tried to put it back on track, I mean, with, you know, internal fighting and, you know, when money comes into play, things get weird. That's just the reality. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And for me, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've got a bad case of ADD, so I've, I have multiple businesses. And, 
And so, you know, when anyways, long story short, when money comes into play, things get a little weird. Towards the end of the run, um, I just had enough. It was just like it just didn't feel right anymore. It just what were those like main like differences that you guys really like ground on? Um, well, one was really like we owned a record label together, and, and I felt like you know I was doing ninety nine percent of the work with the other bands that were signed to the label. You know, what I mean? okay, and, yeah, and yeah. like you know I was in there. You know, I mean Brad probably came in the office twice a year. You know, what I mean? and so right. I was in there grinding. And that wasn't even my problem. It was like, it was more of like the internal stuff within their own group. You know what I mean? It was like they had their own drama. Yeah, they had their own drama with each other, and it, you know, it was all. I was always trying to be the voice of reason and trying to show everybody else the other side's perspective. But you can only do that for so long if it's, you know, the definition of insanity. Trying to do the same thing over and over again, and you know, getting the same a, result. Yeah, expecting a different result. Right. So, anyways, long story short, I. I basically just said, look, I don't want to manage the band anymore. I'm just, wish everybody the best of luck and resign and blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, we still own the label together. We're still um, brothers. It just doesn't make sense anymore for me to manage the band. You know, yeah. it wasn't a monetary thing because obviously, you know, the band still made money. So it wasn't, I was just walking away from it as far as me entrenched in your day-to-day life as your manager yeah. after 15 years it might be time just, yeah just try to cut be, the cord yeah it might be time to do something <laughs> yeah. different you know yeah. and long story you didn't take to it no it didn't really work out too well <laughs> but you weren't at that point you weren't implying like business wise no, not you at were all just saying from a professional standpoint literally the the literally it was I let's get together and talk about suburban noise and how to move forward because I still wanted to obviously put out Cottonmouth King's records and I still wanted to um, be involved in the Cottonmouth King's business because, you know, I mean, I helped build it for 15 years. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to deal with the daily grind minutiae of the internal dramas and all of those kind of things. You know what I mean? So I just wanted to take a step back. Did you share art like, hey, I'm thinking about this artist, I like these guys, or was he out of that? From an A&R standpoint. From an A&R standpoint, the last sort of like seven years, he didn't play much of a role. In the early days, he did. Okay. Yeah. But, um, you know, he moved far away and, um, you know, he just didn't play a, a really day-to-day role in, in suburban noise. So I basically resigned as managing the band. Um, I was sitting in my office um, on, I think it was like a Thursday night at like six o'clock. And I was like, look, um, we were supposed to get together at 7 for a dinner meeting, right, to discuss how to move forward and discuss what to do. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it was 5 or 6 o'clock, I got an email from him saying, hey, I'm not showing up to dinner. And 15 minutes later, I got a letter from a very powerful law firm threatening to sue me for every other business, including our own shared business. So, I mean, I own, you know... I mean, they went after Battle Apps, another label I own, SRH, my management company. I mean, it was yeah. basically like, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I was under like, what I, grounds? Like, what was the? I what, mean, that, in America, what I've learned is you yeah. can sue anybody yeah, for anything. You can come up with anything you want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but was there was there like an umbrella? Was it? Uh, he was claiming it was, rights, it was, or he was claiming? It was kind of bizarre because I, we could never really figure that out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it drug on for quite a long time. We could never really figure out, like, 
what do you what is your claim here like what are you really saying you know what I mean like mm-hmm. he obviously never showed up for the dinner you know I reached out a dozen times just saying like let's talk it out yeah I mean the, this is somebody who was my brother you know yeah. what I mean I would have done anything for him yeah. like he was yeah, fans once lawyers, all those guys your uh, friendship's off when lawyers get yeah and it, but it was weird like I just was like let's just sit down man to man like what what is this like what you know and but and the thing is, is when when lawyers get involved, they can really sort of spin things. You know sure. what I mean? And I think he went so down a path that he just couldn't get off that path. If that okay. makes any sense? Yeah. And he couldn't. There was no way to like sit down with me and have a real conversation at that point because I think at some point he realized like this is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like no. And I think a lot of the, I think that there's a lot of like legal. Uh, remorse, you know what I mean? It is kind. Of, it's like the buyer's remorse. It's like, you, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm fired up. And then two weeks go down, they were like, wow, I just threw out 15, 20 plus years. Whether it's a marriage, whether it's a business deal, whatever. It's like you just changed the course of history and future. Yeah, and for me, like you know, there was there was a, a lot of things that were in play, and the two most important were like, look we own this business together, right? Like, forget about credit, forget about who did what, forget about all that stuff. Like, you've got a family, the guys all have families, right? Like, Mm -hmm. let's get together and figure this thing out, and not just for the business side of things, but also for the legacy, because it's like, that, I mean, the last four years, it's just like, oh yeah, Yeah. I mean, it just, I mean, it it was, it was such a thing to be proud of, and now it's just like, I mean, I'm still very proud of it, but it just, you look back at it, and it's like, uh, you know and, what I mean? And, you know, fans don't want to, like, remember a soap opera. Right. You know what I mean? They don't want to remember band drama, label drama, management, business. They don't want to, yeah, they just want to remember good music at times, so it's like... Well, people so, are trying to escape from that. Exactly. They're not trying to get involved. They got their own legal issues. Like, yeah, and they, you know, and, and for some reason, Brad decided to take a tack where... It was very like he was. I think he because the case was such crap. I think that that's why he made it so public to try to like. Once again, we haven't literally sat face to face, man to man, in three years. I've literally tried to do that so many times. So that so that dinner, that whole thing started three years ago, and. I know from talking to you, it all wrapped up like a matter of a few months ago, right? Yeah, wrapped up. uh, Well. That was the crazy thing. It wrapped up in July of last year, but every time we would wrap it up, they would try to say, "Oh no, no, that's not what we wrapped up." I was like, yeah. "It's in black and white." Like that was the thing is like, you know, you get a lawyer and you pay him five hundred bucks an hour, they'll argue that you know, oh, yeah, they'll they, argue whatever, yeah, you know. And, and, God, <laughs> here, so, so in in layman's terms, if I could, it's basically Brad comes to you and says. I want this, this, and this, and then obviously you're saying that's not the case, and we well, need no. to... Well, out of principle, if I owe somebody a dollar on the other side of the world, I'll get in a plane and go get them their dollar, right? right? But out of principle, if you threaten me with lawsuits and lawyers and all of these, th- what's right is right, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I'll spend more money to fight you to come out on the other side right than to just lay out... Like, a lot of people just settle the case, settle the case, yeah. you know what I mean? But... That that just wasn't the tack that I was willing to do. As far I'm not just going to give somebody money. You know, when yeah. you're smart enough to know that you know your pride's not in the way, your ego's not in the way, and what's right is right, what's wrong is wrong. Yeah, I mean, and it was was it over you know naming and and copyright and you know masters. I mean, did it go or was it just 
the basic black and white of what he wanted versus he basically he wanted money from the businesses. Yeah, and that had nothing to do with suburban noise. Yeah. I mean, it was very clear. We made an arrangement. We were business partners in suburban noise. Right, that was it. I owned SRH before I met him. I managed bands before I met him. I had all these things before I met him. We made a deal to put out records together as Suburban Noise. It got so stupid. I mean, he sued Madchild from Battleaxe, my partner in Battleaxe yeah, Records. Yeah, he's, he's been over here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, he sued anybody and everybody attached. It was, it so was, in the end, is he still part of... No. He, I mean, so he not only got out of his... He got nothing and less than what he had before, because he was 50-50, now he's out. More or less. <laughs> Let's just let's just put it this way: You can sue anybody for any but thing in America. It doesn't mean you're going to win and come out on top. That's just God bless America. Right? <laughs> uh, and look, at the end of the day, I I want them to go reinvent themselves. Go, like I want them to go be successful. Yeah. Go go do your thing. Like uh, it. it, it yeah. It only became me against them because they made it that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. all I wanted to do was just move on with my life, which I did three years ago as soon as that letter showed up. You right. know what I mean? Like, I was heartbroken. I was bummed out. I was questioning, like, who my friends were. All of those kind of things oh, that anybody that. goes yeah. through. But yeah. but looking back at it now, it was, it was a valuable life lesson, right? Mm -hmm. And... I'm past it. Like, I moved on with my life. Like, mm -hmm. I've got so much other things going. That's so in my rearview mirror. I will go be successful. Yeah. Go, like, for the legacy of you, everything that we all built, the fans, the band, the people that worked on it, I hope they go on and be successful and can sort of smudge out this sort of hiccup in the road. Yeah, that I mean, I think, everything, you know, I think everything blows over. So let's get into other stuff, Kevin Zinger. By the way, I just was thinking, this was where I did a year ago. About a year ago, my first show. Right? So this is like this is like my one-year anniversary. Speaking of uh, anniversaries, uh, I had Mikkel from the Airborne Toxic event. I had one camera sitting on a tripod. That's set one. This is set two. Set two. Uh, so, yeah, man, I want to ask you about a little bit about like music and artists. And you take some of these bands that we just rattled off earlier, Unwritten Law, Pennywise, Offspring, names that have like etched in stone and like SoCal music lore what do you think it is about them because their sound doesn't really change but what do you think it is about them that keeps them around and and not just them but like just a, a strong brand in general I think I, I really think that like with all the bands that you mentioned like they built up like real core audiences that were fans and part of it and that will always stand the test of time you know what I mean like, you, think that's, you think a strong fan base is more than Smat like yes. a, a rash of for smash the, singles. Yes, for the long term, right? Yeah. Because you know you can write one great song for the moment, and that's all it is. It's one great song for the moment. But if you write a great record that stands the test of time, you're going to have fans for the rest of your life. Yep. And you're. And I mean, that's it, what and I've done my whole career. Well, I've I tried to like a lot of people. It, it's weird because like in the clothing business people know me as the music guy in the music business people know me as the clothing guy and right because like, I've been in both worlds you know right. what I mean but you know for me it's like I try to find things that like I like building businesses whether that's a band or a brand or whatever it is I like seeing the process things. of yeah, that, how like it develops develops and, it's like yeah. you know like 
It's like you know, I don't want to sound cliche. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to sound cliche, but like watching the plant grow or yeah. something, like, you know. And and that's another strong thing about you know whether it's some of these businesses that have been around for twenty plus years is that they've their roster consists and their reputation consists of things that have like enabled them to build fans. Yeah, you know, so you have Unwritten Law, you have Tech Nine, you take Mad Child, you take Mickey Avalon. I mean, these guys are like. They write the books on like how to build a strong fan base and keep them and make it mutually beneficial. Yeah, I and th- it doesn't mean. And by the way, all those guys—I mean, maybe unwritten law, but very few of those in that list have had radio love, radio play. Yeah, I mean, the, there's there's sort of the long haul in the music business, and what I always tell people, like when a band's going in to make a record, I'm like, look. You can go in there and you can sit all day long trying to come up with a hit, but you can't contrive a hit song, right? Like, or you can't contrive like um, clearly you can contrive a hit song. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, take yeah, that, yeah. I take that earlier statement back. Yeah. <laughs> you can't contrive. Where's the I, pop I, charts? I, I, I'll hit, show yeah, you the list. A hit song that stands the test of time. Yeah. Right. So it's like those. Few of those a the, year come out. Right, and the ones know? that stand the test of time, and all those ones come naturally, right? Yeah. So it's just make. Don't try to make a record for anybody but yourself and just make the best record that you want and you think your fans want and yeah. somewhere in there that's what makes great music and what stands the test of time and I talk about that a lot with artists on this show because some of the best albums ever made are debut albums because they're making them for nobody they're making yeah. them for their handful of fans for themselves they've been lyrics or beats or whatever they've been rolling around in their head forever and they're finally able to put them down that second record is likely for a radio audience, a, a record label, uh, you know, some idea of maybe what it should be. That's Could right. be A&R or a producer that's influencing them. Yeah. And, and I've always taken a very, like, uh, on the label side, like, I've never taken a very, like, I don't sit over people's shoulders in the studio and tell them what to write, or if you want my advice, I will give it to you. Mm-hmm. Other than that, go make the best record you can make at the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're not going to send two or three of your pr- producers in there. No. Yeah. Like, do you want this? Do you see this extending into, like, 40 years? Do you want to, like, you know, be the guy that takes a phone call for five minutes and answers 20 questions, <laughs> in, in, you know, 20 years from now while somebody runs your company? Or do you want to, what do you want to do? I mean, I, th- I, I, th- I struggle with that all the time because, you know, I've... I've been doing this since I was 18 years old, so I've yeah. been doing it for 20 plus years. And you know, I'm a, I work very hard. I pride myself on outworking most of the people in this town, and I put in 12-hour days and all that good stuff. But it's just part of my DNA, and it's 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 a great feeling when you get to see something come to life. Like right now, you know, like with the battle axe thing that Mad Child and I are working on. Like we put this thing out, obviously. Mad Child had a huge career with Swollen Members, but you know, didn't really, never really did a solo record. We never really did that, and just started experimenting with it four years ago. And and now he's got this whole movement and this whole lifestyle built around it. By the way, check out on DarrenRoseMusicNetwork.com. Mad Child, he talks all about the Battle Axe Warriors, Battle Axe Dimes. I mean, it's he the way he breaks it down is is brilliant. And we talk about that being the future model of successful artists yeah and 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 he's definitely a visionary um and he ran his own business for a long time with his own label um and he understands that you know he needs people like myself and the team around him to sort of like get that vision out to the world and and really 
uh, make it bigger than, than what he can do on his own. And, and he's done a great job. And, and it's exciting to see that whole thing blossom into what it, it's becoming, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think we're really, really right on the sort of the, the front end of, of what the possibilities are with Battle Axe. But, I mean, you know, our, the management company, I mean, we work with, I mean, such a diverse group of, you know, not only managers but artists. It's, you know, we manage everything from... Black Uhuru to uh, Pancho Sanchez, the Latin Grammy uh, jazz to rock bands to hip hop groups. Dirt from bike. Di yeah. yeah, dilated people. But you to, also work with like the action sport. Are you oh, still doing some of that? Yeah, I still do a bit of that. I manage um, Risk, who's like one of the most famous graffiti writers out there in the world, but a, a fine artist. So I'm getting into the art world. I mean, just all over the place. Yeah. Slane, who does, you know, acting, uh, acting and, yeah. to music, to everything in between. So, those, you know, I I truly enjoy what I do every day, and I enjoy the people that I work with. So, to answer the question, do I see myself doing this for another 20 years? Probably not, but another 10? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, and now you got the film on tap. Yeah. Give a little rundown. Yeah, it's, it's a movie. You're filming this summer. Filming this summer. It's... It's loosely based around some th things and scenarios that happened in uh, my earlier days in San Diego, and it's um, it's exciting. I've never made a full-length feature film before, and you know I came up with sort of the concept and the script. God, I've been working on it for five or six years now, and um, you know just flushing out the storyline. Um, a friend of mine who I met through Slane, actually, who's actually a real writer, uh, took a bunch of jumbled notes and a storyline and actually helped structure it. Okay. I've never written, written a script before, yeah, right? Yeah. I, I know how to write, but I... Like, format it all format out. Format it all out, yeah. added to the storyline, and really made it Colorful, structured. Yeah. And, you know, we worked on it for a long time, and finally, you know, you never know when you're doing something like that, especially in the creative process when you're when you know the, the stuff is coming from you like I, I, I tend to live in, in a, a more rational space than a lot of people in this town so I was like I don't know if this is good or bad or like yeah. you know what yeah, I mean because yeah, yeah, it's, no, it's your art right so you're like is yeah. this good or bad like and you know, I'm also one of those people that you know. You're I've a got realist. Three, so, you're yeah, I'm a like, realist. This, so, like, is, this is gonna be the next yeah, Oscar. I don't whatever, walk yeah. in. This is amazing. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just like it, so. I handed it to some people I trusted to to read the script, and they, you know, they're honest people, so they would tell me if it was shit. And they all came back to me, and they were like, "No, oh, man, it's good." I yeah. Was like, all right, I might have yeah. something here. So once that happened, I started putting it out to um, you know a few sort of industry people to give it a read, and it's sort of taken on a life of its own. And now, you know, I've got a a bunch of different people in, in town trying to want to make it bigger and you know this talk to this distributor this studio blah 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 but to be honest with you I think I'm just you know I've done everything myself for this long I think I'm just yeah. going to fund it and do it I don't want people changing the storyline it's got a very tragic ending oops I just gave away the ending but <laughs> <laughs> it's got kind of sort of a tragic ending so yeah. I, don't, I, I don't want it to be like oh and then they go off I'm, I can't I've never done anything Corny and cliche, so I do, yeah. or at least I don't think I have, but I don't want to start well, now. I'm available for the extra role. Tough guy number six, Darren yeah, Rose. A exactly. <laughs> uh, couple of things I want to talk about before I let you uh, take the cruise on back up to Malibu. Uh, your dad 
does some really interesting stuff. My but dad is the man. Your dad is a uh, fascinating character. He's, he's probably part of the reason why I, I guess I'm motivated, but yeah, my dad is, uh, he's 73 years old, he swims three miles a day. He's, and how long has he been keeping that up for oh, years? Oh, for ages, yeah, he did like... And this is in the ocean, this isn't like going no, out the yeah, Y. Yeah, no, no, he's yeah. not swimming back and forth in laps and pools. I mean, he did, he was the oldest guy to ever do the Alcatraz swim, and that's this, literally, they jump off the Alcatraz and swim across the San Francisco Bay, and yeah. he did it with no fins, no wetsuit, no anything. He was the skivvies. oldest guy to ever do it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, hundreds of people jump in the water to try to make it, and literally, you know, a dozen or so make it across, and he was one of the guys that made it, so. Yeah. I mean, he and rides Harleys. He, he's 73. I'm like, dude, you gotta get rid of the Harley. Like, it's well, like, yeah, <laughs> but I think one of the things that's oh, worth mentioning is, is he harnesses the power of hypnosis. Yeah, yeah. Which I've always well, been fascinated that's what by. He, that's what he... Nowadays, hypnosis doesn't have sort of like that stigma that it did when he first got into kinda it. Kind of like, like He was like, yeah, new wave, People kind of rolled their eyes when, yeah. you, when you said hypnosis in the 80s and, you know, even in the 90s. But this is different than like going to like a bachelor party and yeah, you're like yeah, Elvis. No, no, no. He's not like, doing that. <laughs> yeah. This I is mean, like... People that want to smoke, lose weight. Yeah, and he's like worked with everybody fears. from, like, you know, hockey teams like the Islanders to actors to all sorts of stuff to Olympic swimmers to the whole nine yards to help them through hypnosis. And he basically, I mean, he made a career off. He was a, he was a motivational speaker, but not in the sense of, like, not like Tony Robbins or one of those guys. He would go into, like, you know, bigger corporations and stuff like that and basically using hypnosis to sort of like enhance your daily routine enhance your basically enhance everything in your life from your relationships to your workflow to everything so he's able to hypnotize himself I mean you can train to kind of get yourself into that if anybody doesn't believe that hypnosis works when I was seven years old my dad hypnotized me this is a true story I got the pictures to prove it and he basically I was seven years old, he made me flat like this, and he put my head on one chair, nothing underneath me here, and my feet on the other chair like that, and I was basically like that, right, and, then the, and everybody in the crowd is like, whoa, how do you do that, and then my dad literally got up and stood in the middle of me. No. Yeah. You have pictures? Yeah. I mean, that's like a 170-pound man standing on a seven-year-old kid in between. Had you guys done that before? No. <laughs> and we haven't done it since. What compelled him? He just said, "I could do this, yeah. and let's just do it." Yeah. Well, he, he just had working, faith in the fact that. Yeah, I mean, he was working with me when I was younger, and, and I've I've been exposed to hypnosis for a long time. But yeah, he was just like, you know, you're very acceptable to it because you, in hypnosis, like when you see these like horny things, like you, you know, like oh, jump around like a chicken. Like the person knows they're jumping around like a chicken. It's not like you think so. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It's not so like, you think the stuff that happens like in in theaters and like at parties is all a gag? It, it's not a gag. It's people know what they're doing. It's not just like, oh, I'm under some spell or something like right. that, right? It's right. just you're just more open to suggestion. You know, it's like it's the story of like, you know, you hear those stories about the grandma who picks the car off the kid or something yes, like that. Like, right. You're able to do these things when the when your adrenaline is flowing and you're mindset is right and all of those kind of things and that's what hypnosis hypnosis gets you into the state to be able to do those things okay yeah yeah so what is the difference between 
and you can self-hypnotize. Yeah. And you've gained that skill. Yeah. He's, people can train themselves, learn to do that. So what is the difference between like putting yourself in a hypnotic state to do something versus like meditating on something? It's the same thing. It's, 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 it's is in, in meditation. Oh, okay. Basically the same. You, it's just a higher consciousness. You're yeah. Just, yeah. It's cool. It's deep <laughs> shit. You like that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> My dad is the man for sure. He's an interesting character. Well, let's wrap up on radio. I mean, I, I, that's how we met. I know that that's one of the things that has evolved probably the most since, I mean, we're about the same age and kind of coming up, listening to the radio and, like, when the CDs came out. or Remember, like, we've kind of lived in that era. We're the last of that generation that's lived in that era. I've seen, like, vinyl, cassettes, CDs, MP3s. Now, shit, you know, I remember 8-track. <laughs> yeah, and, and now, you know, shit in the clouds. So it's yeah. like... I don't think radio is going anywhere. No, no, no. Think... I don't think, and I didn't mean like I meant more like in terms of um, for you as a company that's been around basically with the same brand, the same idealism since before all that. Like, what do you think is that magic secret sauce to be able to battle through all those changes? Everything that I've done in the music business, if we got radio, was just the cherry on top. I've never sat down with any band and said, okay. This is the radio smash. We're going to radio and we're going, you know, yeah. it's just not really in, you have to have everything else. And then if you get radio, that's great. On the, the, the format itself, I think radio is actually getting a bit better, to be honest with you. And I, I don't mean like necessarily normal terrestrial radio, but like in the last decade, you know, with, with Sirius and podcasts and all those things, like it's, there's well, just and- more ways to like, access different voices you know what yeah. I mean it's not the same sort of just program thing I, and I think that's the other thing too is we need a new word for it because it's all content whether it comes from terrestrial satellite a podcast you know you telling me about a band it's like there's influences that come from everywhere you know there's so many different ways where music places that music comes from and you kind of have to be everywhere for, for an artist and I think that's got to be a challenge for you in a position where you're getting artist music out there because it's like you got you could be on 10 12 different sites i mean you got soundcloud and youtube and twitter and instagram and facebook and yeah you just have to be everywhere i mean yeah. people's attention spans are so look the last everlast we manage everlast and, and we uh, run his label too and his last record which was a huge record and you know i've been a huge fan of him you know forever he's he's, a, he's an amazing artist but his last record um, had a commercial single. I don't want to say commercial because he didn't write the song for radio, but it just happened that radio embraced it. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things where it was like, you know, every week you see the song going up on the chart and you're like, oh, that's cool, you know what I mean? And yeah. you see the sales going up with it. And then all of a sudden we saw this huge spike one week in sales. And we're like, whoa, what's that? Mm-hmm. And the song didn't really go up we didn't really get that many new ads you know what it was it was Joe Rogan's podcast really Joe Rogan's podcast made the sales go up 400% because he did he have Everlast on he had Everlast on yeah, yeah. so there's guys like you know Joe you know Rogan's why, podcast or Jason Ellis's radio show like those the fans of those things and the people that listen to it are truly entrenched in those worlds you right. know what I mean and it's it's they they value what a personality like Joe says or a personality like Jason Ellis says, right? So if they embrace that artist and sort of co-sign for it, 
that's part of their world. But it's not just. Well, I agree with that. I haven't blazed a trail that that Rogan or Ellis have, but I think it's it's. Important. Oh, you're on the way. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm talking about the fact that, it, and it may have had nothing to do with Jason or Joe, but I think I think a lot of fans are tired of the 140 characters. Yeah. The quick little blurb here and there, the quick little blog post. It's lazy. It gets old. And radio has adopted that mentality. Program directors want their DJs to talk in tweets. They want them. So it's like everything's very impersonal and quick stamped and done and out. Whereas what Rogan does, what I try to do, what Ellis does, what a lot of shows that are more freeform, unrestricted try to do is bring the personality of the guest in and make it more about their craft, their career, what they do. And that's when fans engage. Absolutely. So if, if you know if, if Eric Everlast was sitting here and we're like shooting the shit for twenty minutes, and you know my mom had never heard of him, she might be like that that kid's interesting. I'm going to go buy a couple songs or whatever. Absolutely, it's like it's just a whole new mentality. Yeah, I totally and I think agree. people can. And then one last thing on that, I do. And the other thing I tell a lot of artists too is that I think you can get as many fans with your personalities and charm as you can with your performance and lyrics. Oh, yeah. I mean, 100%. In the early days, when I first you know, started to really manage bands and really started to put them out on the road, it was like, it was one of those things where like the band hid in their backstage area and never came out. And like It was like this whole allure of rock yeah, and roll. And, you know what I mean? Like, keep the band back there. Yeah. And like that was for me, I, for me, I was like, wait a second. Like, I think it would be better if you went out and actually met everybody because in the punk rock era, it was like there was no difference between the band and the fan. Everybody was like a community. You know yeah, what I mean? Literally, I, I, literally yeah. They'd jump like, in the stage, yeah, on stage, and vice versa. Absolutely. So, I mean, I encouraged the, the people that I worked with. I said, let's just switch it up. Like, after your set, go out there, go hang out with them, and that's what builds the sense of community. Yeah. So, I think that applies in media as well you know what I mean it's like I mean earlier I talked more about the suburban noise drama than I've talked about in three years and that's because there's a trust that they're, that's there you're a good interviewer you know what I mean it's like right. and people like Joe Rogan I mean Howard Stern in the early days that's what he was great at you know what I yeah. mean I mean he still is I just don't listen to him anymore but I'm sure he's great at it but he can pull things out of people yeah. and People appreciate that honesty. People appreciate that insight and that. Yeah, you know what I mean. And I think, and I think, radio just got you know not to harp on what radio is because they're still totally influential. But the way that ratings are calculated, the way that ratings drive uh, ad revenue, the way that ad revenue drives the board of directors, yeah. which is like a multi-billion-dollar conglomerate. Which you know, it's all these things that affect these decisions where. Well, there's no long-form interviews anymore. So we have DJs talking in these short little... Even talk shows in the morning, it's like structured you know, by two-minute segments. And the thing is, too, it's like if we would have done this two years ago, there's half as many music services. I mean, all this stuff... You know, Beats wasn't around back then. And all this stuff, it's like there's constantly new platforms. And you, make- gotta, you have to embrace it. I, I mean, I can remember when the Napster thing happened and yeah. everybody was... You know, freaking out. It was the end of the. I got into the music business right when Napster was happening, and then like you know that was supposedly before that were like the glory days of the music right. business, where you you know you, everybody made tons of money and it was this big glamorous thing. But 
I did it because I love music, right? So when the Napster thing happened, it was like, there's nothing I can do about that, so embrace it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, you and you to... were probably downloading as many songs as I was. <laughs> you know, it was like, and, and it and was. You, and you learned about how many new artists, and you know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah. And my thing was always like, and I tried to say that to, you know, people back then, was like, you know, if they don't buy the CD, they're, they're, they're going to buy a concert ticket, they're going to buy a, a t-shirt. t-shirt. They're gonna, exactly. They're going to tell a friend. Yeah. I mean, it's, the whole 360 deal that's out there right now, I mean, I was doing the 360 deal before that phrase even came up, and it was and it was not because, like, I, I consider myself a visionary or anything like that. It was like, I could do a better job at making merch for my band than a merch company could. I could get my bands on the road right. just as easy as, you know what I mean? So it was well, just I like, think, so I just I, did it all. And I know? think to kind of wrap up and bring everything full circle, it's like, when you talk about these companies, no matter what they are, whether it's like companies that have a lot of respect, a lot of success, and a longevity, are able to adapt with the times and like become part of the lifestyle of an individual person. You That's know, right. whether it's Apple, whether it's SRH, whether it's you know a punk rock like Subvert, uh, Decide One Dummy type yeah. of thing. You trust the product that's coming out of that place. That's why it's the new model because everybody wants more personal. You know, you want to go shop it. Trader Joe's because it feels more like mom and pop than like Vons. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like you want to go to Whole Foods. That's you right. want to go to Lassen's. You want to go to one of these because same reason why I think your model of what you've been doing for 20 years, the reason it's been successful is because it's ingrained in like the basics of marketing and branding. Yeah. And I don't know, not to sound like we're like a Mr. Rogers, remember that lesson, but it's like, <laughs> it's true because I we've talked about this for years. It's like the, the boutique, you know, mid-level label is what's going to survive. Yeah, and thriving right now. I mean, yeah. there's some there's some really great labels out there that rhyme sayers, you know. I mean, I, I've, you know, because I work from the management side, too. I manage Dilated Peoples and Evidence and uh, Evidence and Alchemist's band called the Step Brothers. All of those are signed through rhyme sayers. Rhyme sayers is a great boutique, perfect example of a, a well-run label. And, I mean, those dudes aren't even in... They're not in Hollywood. They're not in New York. They're exactly. They're in fucking Minnesota. Exactly. Travis, who's a good friend of mine who runs Strange Music, Tech Nine, all that stuff. I mean, he's in Kansas City. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the so the internet has definitely made the world smaller, and it's give, given people that true ability to take their entrepreneurial spirit and apply it to the entertainment world. So that applies not only to labels, but radio, media. There's no way 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I could sit here and go, I'm going to make a movie this summer. Because the lines of distribution were just cut off. It was either make money in the theater and sell DVDs, right? So if you didn't make money in the theaters or DVDs, your movie wasn't going to come out. Nobody was going to fund it or nobody was even going to put it out. Now there's Netflix and... I mean, there's so many ways to get content out there. Yeah. Good stuff always comes up. It's you know what I mean. It's like there's good stuff. The cream always rises to the top, or whatever cliche saying you want to do. But the internet has definitely made the world smaller, and it's empowered entrepreneurs to be able to put out good content. Absolutely, but you gotta have uh, you gotta have passion. You gotta have enthusiasm. You gotta work your ass off. Yeah, and you've done it. (laughs) Congrats, brother. Thanks, Thanks, man, for coming out, Kevin Singer. uh, Check out all things SRH. Uh, what, SRH.com? SRH.com. You know you you know you know started a long time when you have a three-letter website. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, those do not exist anymore. They do not. When did you get SRH.com? Oh, God. Probably. Late 90s? Yeah. I, no. It was probably 95, 96, wow. something like that. 
It's early to tap into a website. Yeah. So you got srh.com, suburbanoise, all the suburbanoiserecords.com, srh.com, scratch and sniff, battle axe records, regime inc for the management company. You can pause and rewind it. And yeah. All those down. Or just <laughs> just go start a company and put yeah. out good content. Exactly. <laughs> Listen to what he does. Thanks, Darren Rose Music Network. Thank you.